having had disability discrimination legislation for almost 30 years, are we now treating people with more equality and respect? Hello and welcome to Talking Point, the controversial podcast where we spark debate and challenge the status quo. In this episode, Breaking Boundaries, a pathway to inclusion, how innovations and insights are paving the way for an accessible tomorrow. Find us on the web at talkingpoint.site. That's Breaking Boundaries, a pathway to inclusion, how innovations and insights are paving the way for an accessible tomorrow. Our Talking Point today. A very warm welcome to Talking Point, number four in our series of podcasts on accessibility. Today. Research has shown that we are the hardest hit in in society and because we're the lowest fruit to pick off the tree. It's not acceptable and we need to stop it now. We uncover the complex tapestries of accessibility laws and innovative platforms that are transforming public spaces. Above every door is a word that says welcome, and that's not the disabled person's experience. The disabled person arrives and they're met by somebody who doesn't understand how to interact with them, so they don't necessarily feel welcome. They, they need to experience it before they get better, and what we do is we help them experience it. And from legislation to culinary liberation. Start. 190 degrees C, 18 minutes. We spotlight Cobalt's revolutionary talking air fryer. The smell is very, very minimal a game-changer in assistive technology. The new air fryer, with just using what is essentially heated air and the fan actually circulating the hot air around as it cooks, you don't actually require any oil. Plus delve into clean air zones with North Staffordshire Chamber of Commerce Manager and Policy Advisor Declan Rodell as we explore their pivotal role in environmental action. We recognise the importance of improving air quality, but we feel that the measures suggested will have a detrimental effect on the business community. We're at info at talkingpoint.site. Hello and a very warm welcome to Talking Point. Philip Anderson riding solo for this episode, where I thought we'd begin by looking at one or two of the news stories that had caught my attention recently. And where better to start than with this tech story? And you should be warned, I recorded this in December of last year, 2023. So if you're wondering why November um, was mentioned and we haven't even had November yet in this year, that is the reason why. Enjoy. I have been immersed in technology for a long time. I could see it coming. It's the voice of the internationally acclaimed tech giant who brought us PayPal. Tesla. And now, artificial intelligence. Alright guys, today I'm going to ask ChatGPT to write me a hit R&B song. Whose net worth currently stands at 260 billion US dollars, twice that of his US tech rival, Bill Gates. point in which someone can see a dynamically created video of themselves in real time, or me. And so there's sort of... And if you've not guessed it already, he is Elon Musk who arrived into the UK in November of this year for the world's first summit on the future of artificial intelligence. And where better to host it than at Bletchley Park, the home of the Museum of Computing 
and the world's oldest known programmable computer, Colossus, designed by that GP engineer Tommy Flowers in 1943 to decipher German code, and which was said to have shaved two years off World War II. Bill Gates says... Well, he was joined on stage by our very own Prime Minister, Richie Sunak, in what can only be described as a private party, where members of the audience, including the press, were forbidden from asking questions and where you could be forgiven into thinking Musk was there presenting his own ideal future utopia, featuring a world without jobs. There will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to have a job for sort of personal satisfaction, but the AI will be able to do everything. I don't know if that makes people comfortable or uncomfortable. It, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, and where artificial intelligence made better friends than humans. I think there's also perhaps companionship, which may seem odd because how can the computer really be your friend? But if you have an that has memory, you know, and remembers all of your interactions and has read everything, you're going to say like give it permission to read everything you've ever done. So it really will know you better than anyone, perhaps even yourself. You will actually have a great friend. One of my sons is sort of has some learning disabilities and has trouble making friends actually. And I was like, well, an AI friend would actually be great for him. And ending with this sobering thought. But it is somewhat of the, the magic genie problem, where if you have a magic genie that can grant all the wishes, usually those stories don't end well. Be careful what you wish for. By Jove, you could be forgiven into thinking he was talking to himself there. Well, perhaps he was. That was the tech giant Elon Musk on the future of artificial intelligence. And in a report by me for this episode of Talking Point. And one of the subjects that I didn't touch on, but certainly was discussed during that private conference, was the whole topic of security and how the world would fare should artificial intelligence rule it. Um, <laughs> imagine it uh, taking some interesting decisions where uh, weaponry was concerned and uh, possible launch of some ballistic uh, nuclear missiles, etc. Doesn't bear thinking about, um, but uh, that is one other concern should AI uh, rule the world. And Bletchley Park, if you've never had the pleasure of visiting it, um, I can certainly recommend it. My son and I went over there about 12 years ago when he was about 12, 13, uh, went to the uh, Museum of Computing. And what an interesting study it is, learning all about the evolution of computer technology, right from Colossus to the present day. Wow. Uh, well worth a visit. Now, here's a voice many of you will recognise. Hi there, Martin here with a review of the Weatherspoons app. I've used this app a handful of times and it seems to work very well. You can open up the app. It shows you the current Weatherspoons venue that you're in at the top of the app. So you can click on that. The difficulties that I notice with the app are trying to select your table number. There's two issues I encounter with this. One is you've got to know your table number in the first place to be able to select it. So I had to ask somebody. And then when I selected it, it doesn't sort of tell you it's selected. You can double tap on it. And the only way you know it's selected is because when, when you do double tap on it and look in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, if you use Touch and Explore, it shows you the Continue button. Perhaps a solution to this would be to add a QR code system where you can just scan the table that you're sitting at and it will just add said table. Then you can click the Continue button. 
Once I'd clicked the continue button, it displayed the menu correctly. I was able to place an order through it, pay for said items, absolutely no problem at all. Thank you very much indeed, Martin. And there's more of your favourite apps coming up in the podcast. And a selection of which can also be found and listened to on our website at talkingpoint.site. Standing in line at a London taxi rank, I waited with my guide dog. When it was my turn, the first driver hesitated upon seeing my guide dog. I'm sorry, no pets allowed, he stated, ignoring my explanation of my sight loss. Disheartened, I stepped aside and listened as he drove off. Fortunately, the next taxi in line was different. The driver greeted me warmly, helped both me and my guide dog into the cab and said, we're happy to have you both. All this season we've been talking about accessibility. Today it's the turn of accessible apps, those transformative apps that have had a significant impact on your life. And there's still time for you to get those in. In fact, you can contact us via our website at www.talkingpoint.site or by emailing info at talkingpoint.site. But first, let's introduce you to our star developer, who we're going to be hearing more from later on in the podcast. In fact, he's a former guide dog instructor and an inventor. He's the mastermind behind Welcome, a name which cleverly merges Welcome and Me, signifying an experience that's about inclusivity and empowerment. As a penchant for accessibility, technology, and of course, customer service, closely linked with Welcome. But a number of accolades under his belt, including the Entrepreneur of Excellence and Diversity Award, is also the brains behind the world's first smartphone-operated Pelican Crossing in 2012. Button. He is Gavin Neat. Gavin, a very warm welcome. Wow, what an introduction. Uh, I, I'm, I'm blushing ever so slightly, but <laughs> looking forward to chatting to you. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, Philip. Oh, you're very welcome, Gavin, and it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us. I mean, you strike me as someone who is very highly motivated, and I wonder whether this motivation is something that's as strong today as it was 12 years ago when you first invented that smartphone-operated Pelican Crossing. Yeah, it's probably even stronger. A good analogy is the person who starts the uh, marathon uh, and they know they can complete the marathon because they've done it before, but they're motivated at the start, obviously, but it's the last couple of miles that that motivation probably, well, I'm going to keep going. Obviously I am. I can see the finishing line or I know the finishing line's coming up. So your motivation actually grows as you're going further through the process. And how much of this enthusiasm came from your time spent as a guide dog instructor because you were what one for about 15 years? And yeah, so 18 years in total, but I started motivated. I, I was like, my God, this is just the best job in the world. I joined in 1996 after 10 years in the military as an RAF policeman. I just started doing some voluntary work with guide dogs and applied for a job as a dog trainer 
And then the management team said, no, no, we want you to apply to the guide dog mobility instructor. And that's the person who trains the person with the dog. And I was highly motivated then. My idea of disability and disabled people evolved more to the stage where they just became my friends. I saw the barriers that they were facing rather than the person who was trying to help them over barriers. And I was just like, why do these barriers exist? That's my buddy trying to get from A to B. What an interesting question. Motivation for me was just really wanting to remove the barriers that that society puts in the way of disabled people. And it sounds like from that, then, you learned a lot of empathy. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Empathy is like a superpower. I don't know if you can teach empathy to the level that uh, some people have it. I mean, think about it from the point of view of somebody who works on Marie Curie or something like that, somebody who can be there when somebody's needing palliative care and the amazing skills that people in the health sector have for the ability to connect with people. And and that, I, it's just the greatest thing to have been blessed with. Interesting. And earlier, you spoke about the barriers you had noticed that got in the way of persons with alternative access needs during your time as a guide dog instructor. I'm keen to know more about what these barriers included and to what you felt your observations were associated. It's connected to the empathy thing. I would walk into a shop with my client they didn't know how to interact with the the disabled person. Above every door is a word that says welcome. And that's not the disabled person's experience. The disabled person arrives and they're met by somebody who doesn't understand how to interact with them. So they don't necessarily feel welcome. Any disabled person who walks along with somebody or if they're in a power chair or wheelchair will sooner or later be in a situation where somebody else will talk to the person they're with rather than them. They, they need to experience it before they get better. And what we do is we help them experience it. And just going back to welcome, finally, we're going to be talking all about the uh, philosophy of the uh, application later on in the podcast. But there's a fascinating story when we look at your branding. And there's a shift on the M and E of welcome in your logo. What's the significance of that in terms of what you deliver? I knew that I wanted to improve customer service by allowing people to communicate directly with the person that they were going to meet when they walked through a door. And one day I was thinking, well, I can't call it the customer service app. And I just thought, well, people are going to be feeling more welcome. And then I was just staring at the word one day and and it was was as if there was a neon light around the, the letters M and E. And I went, oh my God, there's a me in welcome. I wrote the word and then I changed the font on M and E. And I went, oh, wow. Yeah. There we go. There's my logo. The key thing here is that it highlights the importance. Everybody needs to feel welcome. And of the many applications you've created, and there have been several, and we've touched on one so far, really, the smartphone-operated Pelican Crossing. And then now we've got Welcome, which is a, a great lesson in customer service for anyone with alternative access needs. Of these, which are you the most proud which one gives you that real buzz? I can remember a time when there were these two young chaps who were testing out Button and they approached a pedestrian crossing. They were both in power chairs. Neither had the ability to reach up and press the button physically, but the mobile phone that was in their pocket was set to our app. When they got to the crossing, the phone pressed the button for them. They both crossed the road for the first time totally independently instead of waiting for somebody else to press the button. And I was just buzzing. 
And while we've got you on there, Gavin, uh, before we move on to our next guest, um, we're asking everybody, because we're looking at the uh, applications in people's lives that have either changed them, uh, transformed them in some way, um, do you have, other than your own, by the way, a go-to app that you like? Uh, Yes, I love uh, trusted house sitters. I I live in a motorhome and other people's houses. They go on holiday and I go and stay in their houses, where which is where I am now. But Trusted House Sitters is an app, which means that I can apply for all of these house sits across the country. And people then interview you and you can then go and live in their house for four to six weeks. It's absolutely brilliant. It only costs about £50 a year uh, for whether you're a house owner or a house sitter. And it just puts you in touch with the people that need you. How accessible is it? Um, I, I mean, I haven't tested it with voiceover or talkback or anything like that, but um, I don't think that it would be particularly difficult. But as I say, I haven't I haven't looked at it from that aspect. I've only just used it myself. Wow, I like the sound of that out, Gavin. Uh, I might even check it out myself. Thank you very much indeed. That's the trusted house sitters there. Uh, Gavin, thank you so much. Looking forward to hearing more about Welcome and its philosophy later on in the podcast. Gavin, need there. And uh, just to let you know that hopefully next month we're going to be talking with another developer, this time Be My Eyes, the app which enables those of us with sight loss to see the world together, courtesy of its many um, volunteers from around the world, which according to their blog uh, has now exceeded 7 million, which is 1.2 million more than the population of Denmark, the very country where Be My Eyes was first conceived back in April 2012. And now with the launch of Be My AI, the virtual assistant of Be My Eyes, which harnesses the power of artificial intelligence being part of Gen 4, enabling us to see the world objectively as opposed to subjectively, something which I and many of you out there will welcome very much. Its founder and current CEO is Hans Jordan Ryberg, and we're hoping to be hearing from him next month on the programme. And speaking of apps, my thanks to all of you who've been sharing with us your favourite apps, those transformative apps that have changed your life in some way. Uh, Do keep them coming in, info at talkingpoint.site. He's not a taster. Hello, I'm Kate Walsden. Two apps have changed my life. Seeing AI has been a game changer for me as it enables me to read my post independently. Furthermore, the Morrison's Grocery app is another fantastic tool. When my food shop arrives, the app displays the use-by dates of the items I've purchased. While I typically rely on my senses like touch and smell for fruit and vegetables, for meat and dairy products, this app is a godsend. Thank you very much. And there's still time for you to send in your favourite apps. We're at info at talkingpoint.site. Your wait is... Start. High power. Two minutes, ten seconds. And my next guest requires very little introduction, except to say they brought us the world's first talking microwave in 1984, preferring human voices over synthetic speech, and survived two major UK recessions, and are about to celebrate yet another major milestone in their technological history. And if you've not guessed it already, they are Cobalt Systems Limited, and their product manager is Carl Tillett, who's in celebratory mode, are you not, Carl? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, we've spent most of 2023 actually doing some development. Obviously, with the uh, pandemic and coming out of the pandemic and all the shortages of parts and chips and so on and so forth, all the components, we really struggled in that moment to be able to develop any new products. But as the world is returning to, I guess, what we now call the new norm, um, we, we've managed to start doing some development and we are very, very soon going to release our new talking air fryer. Start 190 degrees C, 18 minutes. As part of the development, we've also redeveloped um, both our combination oven and microwave oven. So we will be having new versions of them um, in early 2024 as well. Well, congratulations on that, because uh, many businesses took quite a hammering, did they not, uh, during the pandemic. So it's excellent that you've bounced back uh, with several uh, new developments in the pipeline and the uh, soon-to-be-released Talking Air Fryer, which we're going to be hearing more about uh, during the course of the podcast. But just for now, I'm very keen to know, are you an air fryer user? I have been converted, yes. <laughs> And how are, you, how are you finding the experience? I'm enjoying it very much. It's very, very quick, very simple. And most of all, it cooks amazing food. If you have some chicken breasts or chicken thighs, you can get the skin so crispy on the outside mm. and the chicken still moist in the center. It's lovely. Well, I have to admit, you're educating me here because I confess I've never, ever used an air fryer. But I'm sure by the end of the programme, you know, I might be converted. But while we've got you on just for now, uh, we're asking everybody for their transformative apps, the apps that have um, changed their lives. And I wondered whether you had a, you know, a go-to app, you know, you can recommend to our listeners. Yes, Google Lookout. It's an all-in-one app that really helps people with sight issues. You use your camera and you can actually point it at uh, various objects in front of you and it will tell you what they are. It can also double up as a document reader, a currency reader, and that they just seem to keep adding new and new parts to it, you know, month on month. Ah, similar to the Microsoft Seeing AI application, something we're going to be looking at in a future episode of Talking Point in this season of podcasts on accessibility. But this is the Google equivalent. This is Google Lookout. And if it is, any of you out there have uh, used it, and especially in conjunction with uh, Seeing AI, uh, then do get in touch. We'd like to know what you make to it. Info at talkingpoint.site. But do stay with us, Carl. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing all about the talking air fryer we touched on earlier and the world's first talking microwave cobalt introduced us to way back in 1984. Hmm, I was just 15 then. Well, moving swiftly on. Having had disability discrimination legislation for almost 30 years, are we now treating people with more equality and respect? During a stay at a renowned Birmingham hotel, I discovered the accessible room I booked had a step to the bathroom, a barrier for my wheelchair. The staff seemed indifferent to my predicament. 
There's the new Disability Discrimination Act. Uh, I think it's an excellent idea. Yeah, me too. A commendable. About time, that's what I say. Absolutely, right. Then we support it. Good. Uh, no, you see, the Act's already come into effect. We have to decide what we're going to do about it. Do. What does that mean? Well, we do whatever the law requires us to do. Hearing aids, uh, ramps, I don't know. Just keep the costs down. Now you heard the voice of Jonathan Kerrigan of BBC Casualty fame, this time starring as a business executive in the award-winning talk series Society, in which non-disabled persons are seen as a pitted minority, and those with alternative access needs and requirements lead full and active lives. Actively discussing the Disability Discrimination Act, which promised a whole raft of anti-discrimination solutions when it came into being, in 1995. What were your initial reactions to the Act? Did it represent a comprehensive solution? Or, like countless others, you had your own misgivings about its effectiveness? 25 years ago, when I first went to places like London, I would get off the train and I wouldn't be able to get on a bus. Buses were totally inaccessible. If I go to London now, they've got automatic ramps and it's easy to get on. The drivers stop, the ramp opens, and it's really easy. Too often we're seen as numbers. The fact that I think that people have had enough of not having rights respected, of having services refused, and of being invisible. You constantly feel like you're being challenged or that you're not disabled enough. You kind of feel like you're constantly relying on people's goodwill. There shouldn't be all of these logistical caveats like in one bar in Manchester was a glass washing machine in the actual disabled toilet. There's still a lot more to do. Yet prior to the act, discrimination was rife. Being blind has had a big impact on my life. This is Hardy recounting his own personal experience of workplace discrimination, who lost 95% of his sight at the age of 12 to retinitis pigmentosa. There was an incident when, when I was at university where I applied for a job on the campus. It was a call centre job and I did this telephone interview and it went really well. They liked me over the phone, they liked reading my CV. And when I turned up for the face-to-face interview, there was this silence. And the first thing the, the interviewer said was, if I had known you were blind, you wouldn't have come this far. Hardy says he owes all his thanks to the Disability Discrimination Act, which enabled him to challenge workplace discrimination. Yet Hardy's story is by no means unique. The best way I can sort of demonstrate what life was like before the act. Jason Wilshire Mills is a digital artist whom at the age of 11 contracted chronic polyneuropathy, a neurological condition which affects blood cells, which for the first five years left him paralysed from the neck down a condition which still hampers his mobility today. I was very ill. I was in a wheelchair and I was released from hospital on a weekend because I was in a hospital for over a year. And my, my brother said, oh, I'll take you to go see Jaws because like every you know, 12-year-old boy, I was obsessed with sharks and, and goriness. We got there and the manager pointed one finger at me and said, uh, he can't come in, he's a fire hazard. This is the early 80s. It, it was the International Year of the Disabled, ironically and I wasn't allowed to go into a public building. That's when I realised that actually being disabled meant that I was different. Following his period of remission, in which he studied fine art and made paintings, 
Jason bought himself an iPad and started using technology to make large-scale, often inflatable, sculptures and work employing augmented reality. The green paper says that they will medically examine. How dare they? They will medically examine compulsorily 225,000 disabled citizens within five years. People with disabilities often bear the brunt of direct or indirect discrimination. Research has shown that we are the hardest hit in, in society and because we're the lowest fruit to pick off the tree. It's not acceptable and we need to stop it now. Following the introduction of the Disability Discrimination Act, which was the result of years of lobbying and campaigning by pressure groups and activists, a wave of optimism washed over the UK, with many believing disability discrimination would be a thing of the past. However, the optimism was short-lived. The Act's ambiguous language and provisions raise concerns, making it easier for discrimination to occur. Ambiguous language is certainly detrimental to, to people being clear about what their rights are. Francis Leckie is editor of Independent Living. You're always looking to balance one person's rights against those of their colleagues or the resources of the business, trying to decide what's reasonable. It's not really surprising that there are as many cases of discrimination as there are. People were angry, with many taken to the streets to highlight the injustices they faced. Kicking up some fuss, and we will keep on marching till you let us on the bus. Traffic in one of London's busiest shopping streets was disrupted by a protest over welfare reforms affecting disability benefits. We're here today, I think, because people with disabilities want to state the fact that they have human rights and they want those rights respected. The early 1970s saw the general employment rate for the United Kingdom rise to 12%, yet it was higher for those workers with alternative access needs at 16%. Now, when the Conservative government came to power last year, it had a manifesto pledge to halve the disability employment gap. By 1989, that figure had risen to 20.5%, compared with 5.4% for everyone else. Employment opportunities were often restricted to low-paid roles, with piano tuning and basket weaving in sheltered workshops reserved for those with little or no vision, and packing houses and menial tasks for those with physical or neurodiverse needs. I lost my sight too late. With more senior positions reserved for the chosen few. ...that help me, so when I give lectures I'm not reading. 
the staggered implementation of the Disability Discrimination Act over several years delayed the expected pace of change. Four years after their daughter took her own life, a judge has ruled that the University of Bristol discriminated against her disability by failing to adjust assessments given her social anxiety. Ambiguities in the Act led to loopholes for employers and service providers, sparking a range of reactions from those affected. There are no winners today. Natasha is still dead. The university's credibility is in tatters. How is that a victory? In an employment tribunal, um, the cases... Continuous legal battles ensued with court cases and tribunals as those with access needs felt let down by the legislation. Everyone in Britain is protected from discrimination, harassment and victimization. Till the arrival of the Equality Act in 2010, which replaced the Disability Discrimination Act. ...protected characteristics under the Act. Fast forward 14 years. How effective is this piece of legislation proved to be? For the most part, uh, the Equality Act has done what it set out to do. Uh, but more troubling, the third-party harassment provisions and the formal questionnaire procedure were repealed by the coalition government in 2015. So many view uh, the the last 10 years as a a missed opportunity. While the government saw the Equality Act as a legislative leap, its effectiveness in curbing discrimination by its beneficiaries are mixed. There are 16 million persons with alternative access needs in the UK, but their employment rate stands at 53%, compared with 82% for everyone else, making the employment gap 29% and highlighting significant inequalities in the job market. Furthermore, Scope claims anyone with diverse access requirements face £975 a month in extra living costs and are more likely to live in poverty. I've actually seen Down syndrome um, working in cafes and everything. Depends on what the job is. In addition, attitudes towards those with alternative access requirements also raise concerns, with 72% claiming they've experienced a negative attitude in the past 12 months alone. If it was practical or it had to do with someone's health, for example, I wouldn't want someone that struggled in that area. Just getting better. Regrettably, legislative efforts alone are not enough in bridging the gap in accessibility. Currently, disabled people say that they don't want to go into businesses because they are expecting to be discriminated against. Promising initiatives like the Welcome Platform, however, are making strides in the right direction. Above every door is a word that says welcome, and that's not the disabled person's experience. Its founder and developer is Gavin Need. The disabled person arrives and they're met by somebody who doesn't understand how to interact with them. So they don't necessarily feel welcome. They, they need to experience it before they get better. And what we do is we help them experience it. And its aim? It is a mission and an aspiration of mine for disabled people to have the same level of opportunity as everybody else. Welcome means that when they know that that venue is going to welcome them, they're more inclined to go there. And when I say welcome them, I welcome them in a way that is relevant to their access and communication needs. When you know somebody who's living with prosthesis, if you know that you can shake their right hand, which happens to be a prosthetic limb, and you do it, my God, you will feel brilliant. 
It is this mission that is reshaping how businesses interact with customers, focusing on inclusivity and understanding. From a user's standpoint, it's a beacon of empowerment, enabling change and active communication for diverse needs within industry. For businesses, welcome is a tool, transforming customer service into an inclusive experience. It embraces all, covering a spectrum of needs. It's about inclusivity for everyone, from physical to cognitive. We have about 30 on the platform currently where somebody can say, I want somebody to know a little bit more about hearing impairment before I turn up. I want somebody to know a little bit more about what it is to be a wheelchair user. I want somebody to know about visual impairment. But we've also got things on there like stammer and Tourette's, lipidemia, acquired brain injury and aphasia and ataxia and diabetes. And we can add them very, very easily and very, very quickly. Every disability in every environment for every situation where somebody wants to receive improved customer service. Beyond accessibility, Welcome offers a suite of services, each designed to deepen connections and foster understanding. Here, Gavin explains how they focus not just on physical accessibility, but on addressing the diverse needs of everyone, ensuring every aspect of their customer service is catered for. Just recently, we launched with Battersea Power Station Shopping Centre and both Westfield shopping centres in London, but we're also in all Northlink ferry terminals across Orkney, Shetland, Aberdeen. City of Westminster Council now have welcome in all of their leisure centres and all of their libraries. It's the relationship we have with them and the engagement that their champions have within those organisations is the, the icing on the cake. person living with aphasia or lipidemia who's going to a particular venue says two hours before they're turning up, that they are living with a particular condition, that training pops up on the screen. Now, I say training loosely. This is not the kind of training that I would deliver if I was um, doing a face-to-face training session. It is an overview and top tips on how to interact with that person when they arrive, five top tips. But it is also links to the charity that has given us the information on how best to interact. While legislation like the Disability Discrimination Act aimed to pave the way for greater accessibility, it often fell short in practical application. In contrast, however, Welcome emerges as a zealous solution, directly addressing these gaps. Where the Act provided a framework, Welcome brings tangible results, offering real-world solutions that empower individuals with diverse needs and drive inclusive practices in business. This initiative marks a significant pace in legislative intention to inclusive action. At its core, Welcome is about more than accessibility. It's a commitment to empathy and acceptance. Gavin Neat. I think all businesses qualify for Welcome if they provide customer service of any type. If a business can't offer wheelchair access or disabled parking, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be offering service to somebody with acquired brain injury. Let's imagine for a second that somebody is living in a grade one listed building or or works from a grade one listed building where it's impossible to be accessible. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't provide accessibility or inclusion for the people that don't necessarily need physical access. We had so many businesses that wouldn't even start their journey into inclusion Because they would say, I'm in a grade one listed building, I can't afford a ramp, therefore I'm not even going to get involved in it. Well, somebody with autism might want to use your business. Each of Welcome's current 200 plus partner businesses 
is not just adopting a system, they're embracing a new ethos. This journey of integration is also a commitment to community building, reshaping the way they connect and serve all customers. In witnessing the transformative effect of welcome in various businesses, paints a picture of its broad impact. Gavin's vision is actualized as businesses transform, not just in their physical environment, but in their approach to customer service, making real connections with their diverse clientele. These changes are not just about meeting legal requirements. They're about exceeding expectations, creating welcoming spaces that cater to everyone, regardless of need. You know five minutes before somebody walks through the door how best to interact with them because you've been prompted how to interact with them digitally. You will be able to put that into practice. And that's exactly what Welcome does. It prompts training before the person walks through the door. Welcome is not about making sure every building is totally accessible. It's about making sure that the staff in that building understand what total accessibility is and are on a journey to actually implement it. If you know how to interact with a guide dog owner when a guide dog owner turns up at your business, you're empowered to actually deliver better customer service. You know not to talk to the dog. You know to introduce yourself. You know to offer sighted guide, not take somebody's arm. You know to say that you're when you're walking away that you're leaving. And that empowers the staff member to give better customer service and, heaven forbid, feel better about delivering a service within their job. Despite its successes, Welcome continues to navigate its challenges steadfast in its mission of growth and improvement. These hurdles often involve shifting social attitudes and breaking down long-standing barriers to inclusivity. The journey is not about implementing a system. It's about fostering a culture where accessibility is ingrained in every business ethos and where every individual feels valued and understood. I get a notification that somebody on my team get a notification that somebody has planned a visit. I can then see how quickly the venue accepts the visit. And that then gives me an indication of how well engaged they are. And I can then contact the venue and then interact with them to, to, to maintain that level of service with them. My responsibility here is a legacy for my time on this planet. I don't take it lightly. I know that I need to have achieved. Welcome's role in the landscape of accessibility is undeniable. Described as a powerful lesson in customer service and playing a pivotal part in forging a future where inclusion is not just a goal, but a reality. This platform is testament to the power of empathetic innovation, reshaping how businesses and individuals interact, ensuring that everyone, regardless of need, feels valued and understood. I regret that this wasn't around when I was a mobility instructor, because I could potentially have set a profile up for my client and interacted with the staff member and made sure my client had a better experience as part of the process of learning to be independent. And Welcome is a web-based application, which means you access it directly from your internet connection. Here you can set up a profile, browse and arrange visits to venues available at my.wel-co.me. We're still to come. Start. 190 degrees in 18 minutes. Independence in the kitchen. How one revolutionary talking gizmo is changing the face of food. 
the smell is very, very minimal. The new air fryer, with just using what is essentially heated air and the fan actually circulating the hot air around as it cooks, you don't actually require any oil. Carl Turlett of Cobalt Systems will be joining us to tell us more. Now, when it comes to cooking, what type of pans do you go for? Non-stick or stainless steel? Well, do be careful of the non-stick pans, as they do contain property agents called polyfluorochemicals, chemicals, better known as forever chemicals, PFAs, which can be pretty risky for our health. You can make almost endless combinations of structures that have lots of fluorine atoms connected to carbons. But the ones that are most commonly seen are the PFOA and PFOS. Which, according to the Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, are a class of thousands of synthetic chemicals widely used in fire and water-resistant coatings like Teflon and found in products like your non-stick pans. They're easily transportable, so they cross between water, food, physical objects and air. And unlike other chemicals, whose properties break down over time, PFAs do not. Hence why they remain in existence for thousands of years. Yet, despite their numerous benefits, these chemicals pose a significant risk to health and the environment. The agency is now saying that any detectable amounts of PFOA and PFOS are unsafe to consume. When these non-stick coatings like Teflon degrade, these forever chemicals leach into food. They can also contaminate water bodies, affecting marine life. And so by consuming contaminated fish, we invariably expose ourselves to these harmful substances, thus opening ourselves up to various cancers like kidney, testicular and prostate. Plus reduced fertility, endometriitis, thyroid disease, developmental issues in children and increased cholesterol levels. And prompting even the most environmentally conscious-minded of musicians to pen their own songs about the subject. I'll be your forever chemical Until the end of time Ubiquitous persistence. And they've even found their way into our drinking water, polluting 17 out of 18 of England's water companies. That's according to an article published by The Guardian in November of this year. With 11,853 samples testing positive, something experts say they're extremely alarmed by. The data is patchy because testing isn't uniform and the results aren't made freely available by water companies. Meanwhile, the EU's limits on these forever chemicals is 20 times stricter than in the UK. With over 10,000 of these chemicals in existence and only two banned under the Stockholm Convention, the need for regulatory action is clear. There's hundreds of other chemicals that can work exactly the same way that is not PFOA and not PFOS. And so while they're not specifically using those chemicals, you can still get harm from other chemicals in the same group. We're at info at talkingpoint.site. Hi, my name is Alice Pennington. IRA has truly transformed my life by allowing me to read handwritten information without relying on my sighted family members who I live with. 
With Ira, I can simply call in and an agent is always available to assist, eliminating the potential wait for a family member. I use Ira for various tasks, such as reading mail, handling certain computer-based tasks like signing e-cards and identifying my skincare products. What sets Ira apart is that it empowers me to make independent decisions as the agents interpret visual information without influencing my choices. I'd also like to mention Be My Eyes, especially now that I have access to Be My AI. Be My AI has granted me the ability to obtain highly detailed descriptions of images independently, surpassing the capabilities of any other app. Moreover, you can request specific information about the photo after receiving the initial description. Thank you very much indeed, Alice. Two excellent suggestions there, if I may say so. And talking of Be My Eyes, we're hoping to have them on the programme next time round, so stay tuned. And just to let you know, a selection of listener apps can be found on the talkingpoint.site website. Well, we've reached that point in the programme where we find out who today's Talking Point Tech Talk profile is. Start. High power. Two minutes. Ten seconds. And it's the turn of Cobalt Systems Limited, a chief pioneer in assistive technology. We'll be showcasing their latest innovation, their talking air fryer, designed to transform all those cooking experiences, while shining a light on the legacy of their talking microwave, a symbol of their long-standing commitment to accessibility. Start. 190 degrees C, 18 minutes. In terms of air frying, it's, it's become increasingly popular over the last uh, five or six years. Carl Tillett is Cobalt Systems Product Manager. There's about 53% of households in the UK that actually have an air fryer. The Cobalt Talking Air Fryer distinguishes itself with its user-centric design, featuring advanced technology to reduce cooking odours and eliminate the need for oil. This appliance is not just about functionality, but about creating an accessible kitchen environment for all. The smell is very, very minimal. The new air fryer, we're just using what is essentially heated air and the fan actually circulating the hot air around as it cooks. You don't actually require any oil. And even the little things you do, if you want to roast vegetables or so on and so forth, they require minimal sprays or just a drop of oil. This latest innovation from Cobalt Systems introduces a revolutionary three-tray system a feature which underscores the company's innovative spirit. This system allows users to cook multiple dishes simultaneously, simplifying meal preparation. And is a prime example of how they listen to and incorporate the needs of their users into their design. The air fryer itself has a four-litre capacity and it's circular. The bottom level you could have bacon, the next level up your onion rings, and then the next level up you could have some chips. So not all timings are exactly the same. If you want to do bacon for 14 minutes, but the chips only take 12 or the onion rings take eight, you would then add your layers in as the time decreased. Obviously, there will be some heat in there and you would actually have to use oven gloves to put the the tray in, but there'd be no reason as to why you wouldn't be able to do that. This commitment to user input has led to the development of an appliance which is both practical and highly valuable in kitchens around the world. We always listen to customer feedback. 
more and more people while we were at exhibitions or people calling up would say, we've heard of this air fry, we've only ever heard good things about it, we would really like to give one a try. Is that something that you could develop? Fortunately, we finally had enough time and components to be able to do this. Safety is paramount. From its intuitive controls to built-in protective mechanisms, the air fryer is designed to provide a secure cooking experience, giving users peace of mind while exploring their culinary creativity. We actually designed it from the ground up. So instead of being push buttons, they are actually touch sensitive. They've got raised rings around the buttons. You've got increased temperature, decreased temperature, a preset button, because there are actually five preset cooking options that you can use if you don't want to use it manually. And there's a power button. And instead of pushing, you just touch the button and it will increase or decrease the temperature. It will tell you when the power is turned on. To actually turn the unit off, you would just cover the power button for three seconds and it will turn the power off. So it's a very, very easy way of navigating and controlling the device. Are you ready to cook tea? Go on then, set it off. Continue. Goodbye. Also integral to their product portfolio is Cobalt's legacy talking microwave. Button at the top, it'll tell you how many minutes is left. Right, that one tells us how many minutes is left, how long is left. Right, pop it back Yet on this then. appliance is more than just a functional and kitchen tool. It, it stands oh, as a beacon God. to the company's long-standing dedication to enhancing independence and accessibility in the kitchen. It all started with the foundation of the company, Cobalt Systems. There's still current owners, Dick and Val Carey. Dick was a former RAF pilot, found his way to Hong Kong, very keen in electronics, both of them. He met various people and they asked the question about talking products. And that is where Cobalt Systems began. Now in its 40th year, the microwave has evolved to meet the ever-changing needs of its users simplifying its place as a crucial component in Cobalt's assistive technology range. Its development reflects a deep understanding of the challenges faced by those with sight loss, offering a practical solution that promotes culinary independence. It was all to do with literage. There's nothing more frustrating than when you can't get a full-size bowl in your microwave. You need at least a 25-litre microwave to be able to actually get your general kitchen bowls actually into your microwave. The Cobalt Talking Microwave is designed with the end user in mind, ensuring every feature enhances the cooking experience for individuals with sight loss. It's always about the feedback and putting the buttons in the right place for the, the actual layout of the machine, especially with people who have lost their sight more recently, whereas proposed to were, were born without sight. It's just trying to get the balance correct. Its intuitive interface, user-friendly controls and clear audio feedback are hallmarks of Cobalt's commitment to creating accessible and empowering appliances. These features combine to make the microwave not just easy to use, but a reliable aid in the kitchen, facilitating independence and confidence for all users. To have your own independence, to be able to do the, the things for yourself is one of the most fulfilling things. Having the frustration that you have to have other people to help you do just general things will always be frustrating. So to have that 
opportunity to be able to have the freedom to still be able to bake cakes, make your own meals, make your family meals. That in itself is why we do what we do. It's very, very easy to get started. You can get started straight out of the box. Mm. We also have audio CD instructions as well. So for any issues, you can always revert back to the audio CD. Hello. Your wait is 30. In the realm of assistive technology, the power of human connection cannot be understated. Cobalt embraces this by opting for human voices rather than synthetic speech in all their products. Originally, it didn't sound appealing to people. It just sounded a bit robotic. So a human voice gave it more of a, a personal feel. The majority of our products were always recorded and edited by us and the voice of John Childs. Because John was so well-known within the community, and he has a very unique voice that people respond to, he was always the natural choice to be the voice of the products. This choice goes beyond technical functionality. It's about fostering a sense of familiarity and comfort. Their preference for human voices also bridges the gap between technology and user, creating a bond that enhances the cooking experience, turning a product into both a tool and a personal companion in the domestic environment. This approach to building engagement and connection is testament to Cobalt's deep commitment to their users' overall experience. I would say that synthetic voice has improved. Uh, the world is more in tune with a lot of the talking devices, such as Alexa. Still, our research shows that, that people still prefer the human voice for the most part. But um, with the invent of AI, things are, are changing and it's going to be a lot easier moving forwards to adapt any voice into a, a talking product. And doubtless the reason why it is they've survived two world recessions in all the 40 years of their trading history. As a business, we, we care about our customers. There's been uh, so much change and it's no different for us. Although we've had a lot of increases in price we've tried to take them on the chin as best we can because we understand that you know our customers are also struggling so we need to be there for them and provides the the best customer service we can and the best price that we get and more information on the cobalt talking air fryer and its legacy talking microwave can be found on cobalt.co.uk To environmental matters now, and in a moment we're going to be talking clean air zones with Declan Riddell, Manager and Policy Advisor with the North Staffordshire Chamber of Commerce. What are they and what are the cost implications? But first... From the screens we tap, to the cars we drive. Technology is reshaping our world. Last month on the programme, we carried a feature on the cost of technology on the environment. It prompted a number of you to get in touch, some complimentary, others not quite so, including this disgruntled reaction from Tim Gray, an undergraduate from Welling Garden City. I tried listening to your segment on technology and climate change, but honestly, I found myself more caught up with your style of presentation than the actual content. 
Was it really necessary to present the information in such a way? I've heard other discussions on the topic and they didn't need all the flair you added. It felt as though you were trying to make the subject more intricate than it really is. Perhaps if you had simplified things, or just delivered it like everyone else, it would have been more accessible for listeners like me. Where Susan Miller, on the other hand, was more complimentary, preferring to concentrate her energies on the power of the statistical analysis. I was struck by the data from Oxfam's research presented in your segment. The staggering fact that the carbon footprint of the wealthiest 1% is 175 times that of the poorest 10%, paints a vivid picture of the profound inequalities we face in the context of climate change. This isn't just about environment, it's about social justice, equity and our shared responsibility. Your emphasis on this stark disparity drives home the point that addressing climate change is not just about reducing emissions, but ensuring a just and sustainable future for all. Thank you for highlighting such crucial and often overlooked aspects of the climate debate. Yet the element of the feature to attract the most responses was our coverage of the UK Prime Minister Richie Sunak's decision to use his private jet in lieu of a greener form of transport to unveil his carbon capture programme. Here's a couple. I think it's essential we view things in a broader perspective. While on the surface it might seem contradictory, there are aspects of a leader's role and responsibilities that sometimes necessitate such choices. The unveiling of a major carbon capture programme is no small matter, and ensuring the PM's timely and secure arrival might have been a paramount concern. It's also worth noting that leaders often operate on tight schedules, juggling numerous commitments. While I agree it's essential for our leaders to set an example, it's equally crucial to understand that every decision is often weighed against multiple factors, some of which may not be immediately apparent to the public. Let's give credit where it's due. At least steps are being taken towards a more sustainable future. The audacity of using a private jet to unveil a carbon capture programme speaks volumes about the prevailing do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do mentality. Your pointed commentary on such actions, which are starkly at odds with their public pronouncements, is both necessary and commendable. It underscores the need for not just policies, but genuine leadership and leading by example in the fight against climate change. Such stark contrasts between words and actions by those in power must be highlighted and questioned, and I appreciate your dedication in shedding light on this issue. My thanks to all of you who contacted the programme. Do keep your comments coming in, info at talkingpoint.site. And the feature on the cost of technology on the environment is available for you to listen to on the talkingpoint.site website. Now, I wonder whether the recent onslaught of storms across Britain has signalled a turning point in our battle against climate change. Well, today we're joined by Declan Rodell, Manager and Policy Advisor at the North Staffordshire Chamber of Commerce to discuss how clean air zones are not just a response, but a call to action. Declan, a very warm welcome. Hello, Philip. Good to be with you. Talking to us from your new location in Staffordshire Hall, I do believe. That's right, yeah. We moved to the Shire Hall Business Centre just over a year ago. It's owned by Staffordshire County Council. We're one of almost 20 tenant businesses within the building. It's been restored uh, very tastefully and it's become a thriving business hub right in the centre of our county town. 
but there is also the option for businesses to rent hot desking space on the first and second floors of the building. So if, for example, a business might be working predominantly from home, but would like maybe a change of scene for a, a, the odd day in the week, they can come into the centre of the town, rent a hot desking space at a very competitive price. Well, I'm pleased you mentioned flexible working there because that ties in nicely with our upcoming topic on clean air zones, which means you can work from home uh, rather than having to travel into work uh, during the week. You are no longer using your vehicle, which has to be good for reducing your carbon footprint, people will say, and it's improving air quality for the uh, residents, particularly of a built-up area like Stoke-on-Trent. But as you know, um, Newcastle Underline Borough Council, Stoke-on-Trent City Council and its Transport Authority, Staffordshire County Council, uh, are shortly to introduce a Category C clean air zone for the city. Various areas have already been earmarked and it's welcomed by some and uh, not by others. Uh, on the one hand, people will say it's what's needed for the area particularly where people's health is concerned because of the rise in pollution at peak periods. But businesses fear the cost implications, particularly for those businesses with vehicles uh, that are of a certain age and therefore do not comply with the current regulations and would therefore incur charges for entering them. If they have to update their fleets, it's going to be very costly But let's unpack these concerns as we go. Now, in your capacity as manager of the North Staffordshire Chamber of Commerce and obviously policy advisor, your prime concern are your member businesses. When it comes to these clean air zones, what have you been advising your members? The overarching aim here really is is, is all about the need to improve air quality in North Staffordshire. Statistics suggest that as many as 200 deaths a year in North Staffs are attributable to poor air quality. So uh, it's vitally important that air quality is improved. Over the last year or two, we've sort of highlighted the awareness of what the proposals are all about. We've worked with the local authorities, you say Stoke-on-Trent City Council, Newcastle Underline Borough Council and their Transport Authority, which is Staffordshire County Council, to highlight the proposals, what could be introduced. And we've we've urged the business community just to express their concerns about it. We recognise the importance of improving air quality, but we feel that the measures suggested will have a, a detrimental effect on the business community. And clean air zones, as we know, are part of a government initiative, a wider programme to reduce pollution in some of our affected towns and cities across the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. And uh, a directive was issued, was it not, in 2018 to all local authorities to look into some of the areas of concern and uh, sort of earmark one or two areas that could potentially be uh, clean air zones or declared clean air zones. Five years on, where are we? Um, well, I think, the, as you said, it is a government directive, but the local authorities are looking at both schemes. They are looking to see whether, whether records have changed, because obviously during that time we've had a pandemic, which had a, a big impact on less cars on the road. People were staying at home, working from home. Traffic numbers have now risen. So I think there is ongoing review work to see where we are exactly in, in terms of traffic vehicle movements across the area. And... Um, the impact that's had on um, both both schemes. And then looking at the positives, the objectives, how do clean air zones aim to address air quality? 
They're, they're all about just improving air quality by making sure that non-compliant vehicles aren't travelling in those areas, at, 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 certainly at peak times of the day. The clean air zone is going to be a 24-7 model. So it's just about making sure that these vehicle movements will help to hopefully help to reduce air quality. That's the overriding aim of the, of the proposals. And in looking at the financial implications for local businesses and businesses generally, there are several. And I would like to just focus on the updating of one's fleets because that's quite a major um, outlay for some businesses, or it's certainly going to be quite involving quite a lot of capital outlay. Uh, what have you been advising your businesses in this regard? Well, again, we've we've highlighted this as a, a potential impact on the business community. So you quite rightly say, yeah, businesses with with lorries, with vans in the clean air zone, which aren't compliant, would would need to be upgraded at significant cost. But also another impact on that is that any vans or lorries coming into the clean air zone which aren't compliant would have to pay a charge to enter that area. And they in turn might pass that charge on to the customer business based within the clean air zone. So um, businesses could be hit two ways, really. And what about the question of grants? Is there any financial aid businesses can apply for? There may be some grant funding to support measures such as upgrading vehicle fleets, vans and lorries, but it's still to be confirmed um, and it would be a, a sort of a, a proportionately small amount relative to the amount of expenditure that would be needed. And how have businesses responded? Businesses are understandably concerned about the impact of, of the proposals for the clean air zone and also the bus gates. The bus gates are a slightly different uh, issue because we feel it's going to have a big impact on businesses' ability to recruit and retain staff, especially businesses along the Utoria Road corridor leading from Bassford into Newcastle, but also in a wider area from Hanley and Festival Park. So lots to consider, especially where businesses and local authorities are concerned. But in terms of opportunities, there must be one or two. What do you see as been the advantages for businesses here? Opportunities, well, we, we would hope to see that maybe there's an opportunity to improve public transport. If there's an opportunity for businesses to apply for support to impl- install electric vehicle charging points on their premises, and that's particularly useful for staff who maybe live in flats or don't have off-road parking at home. They can perhaps look at purchasing an electric vehicle and then charge their cars whilst they're in the workplace during the daytime. So improved public transport would be a key thing for us. If you could have a very regular bus service along the route, it might mean that people are more inclined to leave their cars at home and and take the bus to and from work. So that would be a good opportunity. So there are pluses and minuses on both sides of the argument here. And from what I can tell, much still needs to be done before the full effects of clean air zones can be really felt across the city and across the country at large. In looking at this, then, do you see clean air zones as being the ultimate answer, the panacea? Or do you think there are better ways of managing air quality? I think clean air zones are all about linked to the objective of of trying to improve air quality. And we fully support that. There's there's no doubt this is is the most important priority for the area in terms of improving air quality for for our residents. We do feel that there is an implication here that the problem could just be pushed elsewhere. Certainly the bus gate Non-compliant vehicles might be more likely to to find rat runs, move to adjacent routes, and we just feel that the pollution problem is going to be pushed north or south and won't really solve the problem. It has to be part of a wider discussion to look at other opportunities of getting people to and from work. We're all guilty of using our cars, and if you were to ask most people why do they use their car to get to and from work every day, it's probably convenient. 
And then there's the other argument, of course. People may say, well, why should I upgrade to an electric vehicle? Yes, I understand that my combustion engine is, you know, reliant on fossil fuel. But then isn't electricity? Uh, it's 75% in this country. Uh, electricity depends on fossil fuel. So it seems a little bit counterproductive. Yeah, but I think uh, I think technology is evolving all the time. It, it's a clean. It is going to be a cleaner form of transport compared to uh, internal combustion engines. I know the government recently announced that we're going to push back the the deadline by which there'd be an end on all the sale of all new internal combustion engine cars. That's been pushed back by five years to twenty thirty five. Um, so we'll wait and see. I think more needs to be done to improve travel to work options, getting more of us out of our cars, using public transport, cycling, walking, or even car sharing is a more practical option where people can share the, the journey to work with colleagues. And that's going to save money and it's less cars on the road. Which brings us nicely on to some of the more greener initiatives of getting people into work without using their vehicles in the drive, as you say, to use public transport with schemes like Green Week being one of them. Yeah, that's right. So throughout the year, there's various campaigns that, that take place to promote public transport. So Green Week is one. And for quite a lot of people who live a distance from the workplace, cycling and walking isn't really an option. And if people have got to get two buses, again, that might not be considered an option. But car sharing, we feel, is a pragmatic option of uh, getting people to share. It spreads the cost, especially with the cost of petrol rising again. So it's just a good way of um, getting cars off the road, getting people to and from work. Or provided people fall in line with that, but people might be reluctant to walk to work if they thought that the air quality around them was pretty poor. Yeah, this is true, perhaps. Um, but you know, walking to work and cycling to work can both be a, a good means of, of keeping keeping fit, get exercise in, and we're quite lucky around the area that we've got quite a lot of off-road walking, cycle paths, flexible working is certainly something that's been introduced uh, in more places in recent years. So that's that's a good thing too, where people have got the option if they want to work from home, uh, they can do so now. I suppose the only downside of that that thing, it certainly affects town centres. If, if more people are working from home, then people aren't popping out at lunchtime for a sandwich, they're not collecting their dry cleaning. So getting people into into workplace on a regular basis helps to support our local retailers. The challenge for businesses would be coordinating employee schedules. Yeah, this is this is true. I mean, and some businesses are, are quite relaxed about people from working from home. Others are more passionate about getting people back into the office. People miss that dynamic when they're working from home, coming together, having a quick chat, uh, you know, rather than emailing back and forth. And as a man who does a bit of both, works from home and is out and about and in the office, I mean, how do you feel about it all? Strange times to start with, but um, I enjoy having that good balance, really. I enjoy that, that in-between bit where you can work from home, but if you need to, certainly if you need to focus on something specific, you can, you can I feel more productive sometimes at home, but I also enjoy the, uh, the chance to talk to colleagues, run through things, have that face-to-face -face interaction. So I, I enjoy the balance. Oh, I agree. And as someone who has been either a self-employed or a managing director, I've had the pleasure of working from both the home and the office. Which one do I prefer? Well, I think both have their advantages and disadvantages. Working from home certainly comes with one or two interesting challenges. That's for certain. You know, you've got to be disciplined, self-disciplined when it comes to executing your daily tasks and not to easily be distracted. Um, so I do have, I've always mainly had um, an office, a study, and uh, that's helped to keep work and home separate. 
But very interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sure it's raised lots of questions in the minds of our listeners, and I'm looking forward to uh, looking into my inbox over the coming days to see what people have to say uh, regarding clean air zones. We are at info at talkingpoint.site. But in the meantime, Declan, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks, Philip. Thanks for your time. That's Declan Riddell there, uh, Manager and Policy Advisor over at the North Staffordshire Chamber of Commerce. Bringing things for this episode to a close here on Talking Point. My thanks to all my guests, Carl Tillett, Product Manager over at Cobalt Systems, our star developer, Gavin Neat of Welcome. Well worth checking out, by the way, my.wel-co. Dot M-E. And of course, Declan Riddell, who we've just been hearing from, Manager and Policy Advisor over at the Chamber of Commerce. And of course, to you for listening. I'll be back in a couple of months' time with the last in this season of podcasts on accessibility. So we'll be starting a brand new season after that, subject or theme to be confirmed. Don't forget, do keep your suggestions coming in for any future Talking Points. We are at info at talkingpoint.site. In the meantime, whatever it is you're doing, do do it safely. And if it is you would like to listen to this and other episodes or find out how you can get involved with the podcast, we always love to hear from you. You can find us at talkingpoint.site. Do take care of yourself. Look forward to your company in a couple of months' time or thereabouts when my health permits. Um, But unfortunately, I'm not as regular as I used to. And I'm not talking about uh, my never regions when I'm talking about being regular there. Um, So uh, hopefully when my health does permit, I'll be back with you with another episode. Do take care. Bye bye.